Hi everyone, my name is Christopher Bonheim and you're listening to the BIN podcast. Simply the podcast for those who want to learn from the very best in business, tech and entrepreneurship. Let's start the show. Mark Yusko is the founder and CEO of Morgan Creek Capital Management and one of the partners at Morgan Creek Digital. In this episode, Mark gives a masterclass in investment and life philosophy. He shares stories from the best investors in the world, explains why he decided to invest in Bitcoin and crypto, and gives his best advice for the people wanting to succeed at their craft. This episode is sponsored by Norwegian Block Exchange, a Norwegian cryptocurrency platform where you can buy or sell the most popular cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum. NBX is registered with the Norwegian supervisory authorities and keeps customers' funds insured with Ledger Vault's insurance program. Join over 9,000 satisfied clients and sign up with your bank ID at nbx.com. All opinions expressed by Christopher Wonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christophe Volnheim as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Welcome back, everybody. Super happy to be joined by Mark. And Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, great to hang out with you this afternoon and uh, look forward to the conversation. Awesome. So can you take us a bit back in time and talk a bit about your background? Because there wasn't a straight line to finance. I think if I remember you correctly, you could have become an architect. You could be a doctor handling COVID patients, but you found a novel concept called do something you like in life. And then you ended up yeah. in finance. No, it's perfect. And uh, yeah, so I, um, you know, I would say my seri- my life is just a series of, of happy accidents and, uh, you know, I grew up on the left coast up in Seattle, Washington, moved around a lot in high school, lived in Connecticut and Texas, and then found my way to Notre Dame. Really did think I wanted to be an architect. Uh, again, many of the listeners are probably too young to remember this little show called The Brady Bunch, but the uh, dad in the show was an architect, and I was like, that's pretty cool. So, but I went to school, tried that, didn't like it, and uh, dad wanted me to be an engineer uh, and eventually be a consultant like him. And tried that, didn't like that that much. And then my girlfriend at the time said, hey, why don't you do something you like? Like, there's a novel concept. So uh, what do I like? Well, I like, uh, I like, you know, science. I like biology, chemistry. So I did that. And uh, turns out when you're a biology and chemistry major, not a lot of options. You can go be a doctor or, again, go be a consultant uh, or a healthcare or a pharmaceutical sales rep. And I'm not 6'4 and handsome, so I was not going to make that. So... I uh, decided to uh, not go to medical school, but went to business school, go to business school um, and just took the first job offered was an insurance company. And the interesting thing about that was if I were a resume inflator, right, I would say I was a M&A analyst. <laughs> now, what I really did is I did spreadsheets for the CFO and we did buy other little companies. We were a, in you know, insurance roll up. Uh, but I was just a spreadsheet guy. And, and so, but the guy who was doing investments retired. So I got a chance to do investing of, of bonds. And then I got a job randomly through a friend working at an investment management firm. And that really changed my career. So I went to work for this firm called Disciplined Investment Advisors. And our mantra was invest without emotion. 
So, you know, base things on the numbers, we are value managers. And, and so that's kind of, that inculcated me into this idea of value investing. Um, did that and then I got the call. So I got the call to go back to my alma mater at Notre Dame, did that. And I learned the endowment model of investing from Cambridge Associates. And it really opened my eyes. I thought it, you know, investing was all about stocks and bonds and picking, you know, should I buy this stock or that stock? Well, no, investing really is about asset allocation. It's about which assets do I focus on, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, what geographic region, what strategies. And uh, we made lots and lots of money at Notre Dame in venture capital. And that's where I had my aha moment. It was back in, in 96 and we in, had invested in this little company called Sequoia, which was a venture capital fund. And they invested in this little company called Google. And at the time we're like, Google, it's a stupid name. And you know, what do we need another search engine for? We got Webcrawler and Lycos and Fetch and uh, Ask Jeeves. You know, what do we need Google for? And it turns out you know, Google had some technological innovation called indexing and changed the world. And so you know, we invested half a million dollars in that little company and it turned into $200 million. I'm like, ooh, that's pretty cool. So then I became hooked on this idea of invest uh, in innovation as an asset class. Right? Really think of innovation and particularly technological innovation as, as an asset class. And so throughout my whole career since then, uh, I've spent a lot of time in venture capital, a lot of time investing in tech companies. And you know, that's how you and I end up talking today is, is I ended up in, in the crypto world Again, just a happy accident uh, through a good friend, Dan Moorhead. And the reason I was late to our conversation, I was talking with Dan Moorhead, uh, who is still a, a good friend and, and partner. So um, lots to talk about, lots to unpack. But that's, I would say, I don't do short. Well, Christopher, I, I, I uh, talk too much. I, I give long answers, but that's, that's the string. I mean, that's awesome. So I, I basically can just hit record and let Mark do the talking. But since we, I mean, the reason we're talking is because people listening to this podcast have heard your name before. We have to go back to one and a half year being in New York, talking with Pomp, and I basically asked him, what have you learned from Mark? And it was so much to unpack, but he said that Mark said to me that the best press the winners harder than anyone else and get rid of the losers faster than anyone else. But before we go into your investment principles, can't you just also maybe, since Pomp been on the podcast, can you tell me a bit about what have you learned from him as well? Ah, fantastic. So I'll give the backstory of how we got together because it's it's part and parcel of, of kind of what I've taken away from Pomp. And uh, you know, we're again close friends, good business partners. Um, so it's interesting. I met Pomp just randomly through an investment, again, in, in innovation and technology, uh, we do a series of special purpose vehicle investments in tech companies. So we've done you know, Facebook and Alibaba and a whole bunch of, of different companies. And, and we were early in ride sharing. So we did Uber, we did Lyft, we did Didi, we did Ola, we did Grab. And in the Lyft investment, um, Pomp and his partner, Jason, were doing an SPV and, and we just met, you know, 15 minutes and we were trying to talk about who, you know, how to structure it maybe together. And I thought he was a nice guy, but didn't really know him. Um, but then I heard him on a podcast. I think podcasts are cool. And I, I heard him on a podcast um, and I was like, wow, 
that's really, I, that's something I would say. Hey, that, that, okay. So I'm like, okay, this guy. So I said, I'll follow him on Twitter. And literally it was like, like, like everything that he tweeted. Like, that's something I would say. Hey, that, that is something I say. I need to meet this guy. So uh, I literally DM'd him and said, hey, let's, you know, you're here in Raleigh. Let's, let's get together for breakfast. And uh, breakfast turned into three hours, turned into breakfast the next day, turned into basically spending, you know, 10 hours a day with each other for the next week. And he said, all right, we, we got to work together. And so the first thing that I got from Pomp was uh, this idea of, of just boundless enthusiasm, right? I mean, he is, he is a very enthusiastic guy. And I look, I'm, I'm an optimistic guy. I'm a hyperbolic personality. My wife says, I'll tell you, you can't say things like that. I'm like, like what? She says, you, can, you say things with such conviction. I said, what's wrong with that? She says, well, people will believe you. I'm like, well, that's kind of the idea. And she says, but what if you're wrong? She says, I'm wrong all the time. I'll change my mind. We'll do something else. But so boundless enthusiasm, one thing I really took away from Bob. And, and that is the one thing I love. It, it's people like yourself, enthusiastic young people. I, I'm old, right? I mean, I've been around a long time. I got white hair. But man, the last three years since that breakfast with Pomp and, and I have gone headlong down the crypto rabbit hole. I'm having more fun than I've had in my career. Uh, I'm hanging out with, you know, the crypto kids, you know, black t-shirts, although I, I don't have a black t-shirt on today, but I got a black shirt on. But it, it's, it's so great to be around young, enthusiastic, really smart, passionate people. So that, that's, that's one thing. Second thing is I have always been a big fan of what I call a fast motor. So my wife and I set up a scholarship program at, at our alma mater at Notre Dame. And the idea is we're trying to attract the best and brightest to come to Notre Dame, you know, to be the future Catholic leaders of tomorrow. And um, that's hard because they all want to go to, you know, the, the Hypes, the Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford. But, you know, we personally interview them and people say, well, what do you look for? Fast motor. Right? I want people who, who think fast, who, who do fast, who, who, who really want to engage in things. And, and Pop has one of the fastest motors I have ever encountered. I mean, he, he just, he's always on and, and that's cool. Um, I would say one other thing that, that Pomp really helped me with is, you know, I, believe it or not, I'm a pretty conservative guy. And people, you're not conservative at all. You know, you do all these crazy things. You're, you know, you're in Bitcoin and you're in crypto and, and you're now you're doing this SPAC ETF. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. But, but I do them with a very measured approach and kind of deliberate. And I, and I like to manage risk. And so uh, the thing about any investment, right, is, is, you know, we are paid, investors are paid to take intelligent risk, right? Our job is to seek volatile things, not to shy away from them, right? If I want to minimize risk, I put all my money in cash and forget about it. Um, but our job is to seek intelligent risk, risks in which we're compensated. And the thing that, that I have taken from, from Bob, and I always knew this and I always, always thought about it and always acted on it, but I never really crystallized it the way it's, it's about asymmetry focusing on asymmetry. And again, I'd always done that in the back of my mind is, you know, more upside to downside. But uh, he really helped me crystallize this thought, particularly when it comes to, to crypto and, and Bitcoin in particular, is the asymmetry of the upside. I mean, my favorite quote, right, from Satoshi-san, whoever he, she, they happen to be, 
you know, maybe you should just get some in, in case it catches on. And uh, that's a great line, right? Because the upside at that time when it was basically pennies, you know, was, was unlimited and the downside was nothing, right? You're risking a very small amount of capital for, for a big upside. So even today, I think the upside downside ratio of Bitcoin is, is extraordinary. I agree. I mean, there's so much to unpack there, but I want to spend a little a little bit time talking about partnerships because you co-invested a lot. You did so much different stuff over, over the years. And I was listening into Steve Kerr, the, the head coach of Golden State, did like this session at Berkeley talking about culture and leadership, etc. And he also has this dilemma that you also have. You have this very skillful person, maybe doesn't have the best values. And the other way around, you find a guy, right type of values, you can connect with him, but yep. uh, not, not as skillful as the other one. How have you balanced those traits? Because you can you meet so many brilliant people, but I mean, you, it's it's also dangerous if you don't find people with the right values, right? Now, Chris Rice, just I was talking about this exact thing this morning uh, with a, a good friend, who's actually another a podcast host, and and uh, you know, I won't use the vernacular I actually call it, but let's just say I, I call it the no jerk rule. I have a different word that I used, um, but. Yeah, and I've only violated it twice in my life. Both times it cost me money and pain and suffering. So I'll never do it again. And you're right. I am blessed, right? I get paid to talk to the smartest people in the world about investing. Right? That's my job, right? Go out and find us managers in stocks, in bonds, in hedge funds, in private equity, in venture capital, and build portfolios for our clients. And I've talked to Nobel laureates. You know, I, I've had dinner with Harry Markowitz. I've talked to Myron Scholes. I've, you know, I've hung out with Cliff Asnes, who's one of the smartest people on the planet, another former Chicago guy, and all these people. And the reality is, there are a lot of smart people, but a smart person with bad values or is dangerous, and it will cost you money every time. And uh, I said, I learned it the hard way a couple times, and. And uh, yeah, that's the problem with investing is you don't get to learn from other people's mistakes. You got to feel the pain in your gut yourself. And so you got to make the mistakes and then, and then you do learn. So values, character are the most cruel thing. And back, back to my scholarship thing, right? We, we look for four things, right? We look for intellect, not intelligence, right? I don't want someone who scored a perfect grade on the SAT. I want someone who's intellectually curious, who has a fast motor, who, who really wants to dig deep into ideas. And, and when you have a conversation, you seek people with opposite opinions so you can find truth, not to convince the person of, of your view, but to, but to seek truth. Then we're looking for character. And character is, there's a bright line, right? There's right and wrong. And people who, who have good character. And uh, one of my favorite stories about that is, is they say character is, is what you do when you think no one's looking. And there's this great story. So we had this, this young man and he was interviewing and he was awesome. In person, in the interview process, he was awesome. I mean, everybody loved him. But someone oversaw, someone saw him uh, basically dressing down a maid, basically yelling at her because his bed wasn't done the right way at the hotel. And I said, out, done, right? If, if you treat people that you don't think can help you poorly, I got no time for you. And, and that character is a, is a big thing. You know, the third thing we look for is, is a commitment to what we say Catholic social teaching, which doesn't mean you have to be Catholic, but you have to believe in that you're put on this planet to give back, right? To, to make an impact. 
uh, and that do you want to use your talents that are a gift of grace to to help others? And so that's the and then the fourth is is leadership. And really, leadership is about inspiring others to follow your vision. And you know that is something that is sadly lacking in our world today is true leadership. You know, look around the world, not a lot of great leaders, you know, the, the, the bygone days of people like John F. Kennedy and, and others are, are really absent today. And we really need that, that leadership. You, you, see, you do see it in, in certain sectors. There are some tech leaders who I think are extraordinary. Um, you know, you talk about basketball, I mean, someone like a Phil Jackson, who's an extraordinary leader and, and uh, is able to motivate. Steve Kerr played for Phil and, and brings that same um, motivational strategy and style uh, to others. So I, I do think those are the things, again, long answer to, to but, but it's such an important point that all day I will back character and honesty and integrity over intelligence and, you know, super creativity and, and all those things. Um, I, I give you one, one example, one, one last example of that. So, you know, I've been blessed. I mean, truly, truly blessed to have some great mentors in my life. And probably my biggest advice, you know, I tweeted this out uh, about a year ago, you know, advice to my younger investing self. And one of the biggest points was find mentors. And I was dumb, right? I didn't find mentors until late in life, but, but I was lucky at 34 years old, uh, I did get uh, Julian Robertson, famous hedge fund manager as, as a friend and mentor. And it just, I just lucky. And, but he was a man of impeccable character and integrity. And my favorite story is one day he went through customs, right? Got off airplane, went through customs and he was wearing a pair of shoes that he had bought in Italy and he forgot to declare them. He literally wrote out a check and sent it in the next day. I mean, who does that, right? Most people lie about what's in their suitcase, let alone, oh, I forgot to report this, so I'll send them money. I mean, the guy is, is amazing, but he had a great line about that. Uh, when he would ask an analyst, you know, you know what, are, what are the numbers? And you could tell when someone starts to make stuff up or, or draw on kind of not thing. And he said, Don't, never fudge the numbers. Never fudge the numbers. And the same applies to character. Never cross the line into just because it's easy and expeditious and you might make a little money. If it's wrong, it's wrong. And again, I just have no time for that. But, but isn't it all, again, so much to unpack there, but but a big thing about character is that, you know, when you're an investor, you're going to hit trouble times anyway. Yep. And, and that's when it sucks to have a ba bad partner that you can't trust because, I mean, when, when things are going great, it isn't that, that hard, right, yeah. to manage people. Look, I, <laughs> yeah, I have, uh, let's just say I've had some amazing partners, still have some amazing partners. Uh, and Pomp is one of them and, and I have others, but I've had some horrible partners and, and it comes down to, to character. And, and look, partner, think about partner, think about your life partner, think about partnerships in business. Partner implies self-sacrifice. It implies doing the right thing to make the partnership better. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean that you subjugate yourself and, and, and just don't be yourself, but it, it means that, that you again, you do what's right and you do it in the spirit of helping the partnership. And you know, there are plenty of times my wife and I have disagreed on something, but we work in the spirit of partnership to, to get back to, to the right place. 
And, and I appreciate her feedback, candid feedback when I'm doing something stupid, right? So, but I've had, unfortunately, some, some really bad partners. And, you know, I think the big thing is greed changes people. And it, it's sad, right? I, I say, you know, I had these two guys and uh, I won't go into the long version of the story. I always say it requires alcohol. But, you know, when we were nobody from nowhere, right? When we were not successful, everything was great. Everybody did their job. Everybody was happy. When we became super successful, we had a period where we were really, really successful. We had, you know, $10 billion under, under advisement. And, but people, some people, when, when things are going well, they, they get greedy and they, they try to take. And uh, I had an experience where a partner, um, basically, I hate to say it, but he started stealing, right? He started taking things off the top and then you know, splitting the bottom line. And, and I caught him. And what I should have done is I should have divorced, right? I should have said, no, we're done, right? Let's just unwind the partnership. You go your way, I'll go mine. And instead, I said, you know, pay me back and I'll call it a day. No lawsuits. No, and that was wrong. That was dumb. Because if, if they cheat you once, they'll cheat you again. I would say it's like, that's why I love playing golf. And I don't, I'm not a good golfer. I don't play a lot of golf. But playing golf with someone, you learn a lot. Right. Someone always improves their lie if they don't report their score the right way. That because your point, when when things get hard, right? When you're in a partnership in an investment and suddenly the world changes and you got to take a write down, that person who cheats at golf is gonna fudge the numbers and never fudge the numbers. You have this great line, and I love the story behind it. So if you can take the story, I would love it. But you had this like the rule. I think it's a mentor told you that never hire anyone over thirty-five years old. Do you remember yes. that rule? Can you take yeah, it? Yeah, oh, it's no, very no, funny. that's great. So I'm I'm interviewing uh, to be the CIO of UNC, and you know I'm thirty-four years old, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, there are a lot of people in their fifties and sixties, way more experienced than me. Uh, even an alumnus of of UNC, I was a Notre Dame grad and was the number two guy there, and and you know interviewing to be the number one at at, at uh, UNC, and and the chairman says I'd never hire anybody over thirty five. I'm like what? And he says, Yeah, look, it, it's it's just math. You know, your twenties are for getting educated, your thirties are for building your reputation, your forties are for capitalizing on your reputation, and your fifties and sixties are for enjoying your reputation. And he said, by 35, people are, are burned out from building their reputation. I'm like, wow, that's really interesting. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that 100%, but I do think there is this sweet spot of, you know, kind of in your 20s into your young 40s, where you really have, you have, you know, physical endurance, you have and there are plenty of old, like this guy at 65 still could have kicked my butt. He was a former Marine, although actually a Marine. You can't say former Marine. He was a Marine. Um, and so he had a lot of energy, but, but you just have, you have mental energy. And there's actually studies about this, you know, traders past 40. It's just hard. You know, the plasticity of the brain starts to change. And, and there's also a little bit of, of, of lack of fear. There's a, there's a great story. And again, you're too young now, but there's this guy and I don't even like telling the story because now he's become a bad guy, you know, Bill Cosby. But when I was growing up, Bill Cosby was still a good guy. He was a comedian and he had this uh, story about a kid on a bike 
And he said, this kid was amazing, right? He would ride up the swing set and across the top and down the other side and across the top of the fence and doing circles like six inches off the ground. And he never fell. And you know, the first time he fell when an adult told him about gravity. And so when you're young, you don't know what you don't know, and you don't know what to fear. And, and that can be dangerous, right? You know, Pomp was in the army, and they're, you know, if you go into unfriendly fire the wrong way, you're going to get killed. And um, if you go into investments without protection, you can get killed. But Michael Steinhardt, famous hedge fund manager, has this great line. He's like, you know, the great thing about young people is they are willing to try things. And yes, they'll make mistakes but the mistakes aren't very costly because they don't have a lot of money. So he says, make all your mistakes when you're young and it doesn't cost you very much. So, and again, Will Smith has a line about this too. I, I saw him speak once and a very hypnotic speaker, but he has this great line, right? Fail fast, but fail forward. And the thing that I rail against all, all the time now, and I have little kids, so I have a funny family. So I have older kids and then 20 years later, my wife and I had our third kid. And people always say, oh, when did you get the new wife? I'm like, nope, same wife. I'm like, how's that possible? I'm like, I, I don't know. We were 47 years old. And you're not supposed to be able to have kids then. We did. And it's awesome. And my 10-year-old is amazing. And uh, he keeps me really young. Like, I'll walk in and he'll say, dad, let's wrestle. I'm like, you mean on the ground wrestle? Okay. Okay. That was a lot easier at 35 than 55 or 57. Um, but the... <laughs> See, now I just, I went so far off the rabbit hole, I forgot what the point I was going to make. But uh, anyway. No, but it's great. Great stories, Mark. I, I think um, another part, I mean, I love the, the podcast, obviously, you, you did it with Pomp. So there, there's a bit of the same questions here. But another part that just viewing it from the outside, I mean, you, you talked a lot about you feel like the market is a bit bearish, you've been on CNBC, you, you, don't, you don't like the outlooks. And then you had this like, Wonderful um, comeback where you, I think you, you cited Eminem and you just went like, okay, I was wrong, but okay, I'm back. And I think it yeah. goes back back to the principle that you're not afraid of being wrong. I mean, there's nothing wrong about having a mistake in the market because that's the way it's going to go anyways. But the big danger is to never change your mind. So maybe can you talk a bit about that principle to not be so afraid about judging the market the wrong way? Just don't stay wrong and change and adapt if you need to. Uh, okay. It's such a critical point. And, and again, just, you know, lucky to have lots of great mentors and, and, and one of the, my early mentors had, had the line, right. Which is, you know, being wrong, totally fine. Staying wrong, not fine. You, you have to have the ability to change your mind. And, and, and I've tweeted this and talked about it uh, many times in that, um, you know, winners lose or fail, or are wrong, way more than losers. I mean, it's, it's just not even close. And it's because winners aren't afraid of being wrong, of failing. Um, and so they try more new things. They put on more positions. They, they take more risks. And, and, and the key, back to the original you know, wisdom uh, from Soros that I shared with Pomp, that you know, it's not whether you're right or wrong. It's how much money you make when you're right and how much money you lose when you're wrong. And so the best of the best, you know, the Julian Robertsons and, and where I got that, that wisdom from about pressing winners, press winners, um, you know, the losers cut losers, right? There's the famous picture of Paul Tudor Jones in his dorm room at Virginia with that on the wall. So that one's easy, right? Admitting your mistakes fast 
you know, that's the most important thing because then a small loss doesn't turn into a big loss. Pressing your winners came from, you know, I've been lucky. Uh, I've backed pretty much every spin out from Julian Robertson's shop, you know, over the years, whether it was Blue Ridge or Lone Pine or Maverick, you know, Tiger Global, all these things. We, we invested with these guys. And I went and I, I got to talk to them and I have the, you know, books full of notes. In fact, I should probably put it into a book someday talking to these incredible investors, you know, now manage 10% of the long, short money on the planet. They're all trained by the same guy. I said, what made Julian so great? And without, without fail, they always said, oh, he had the ability to double up. Most people double down, right? Most people are so afraid of admitting they're wrong. They say, no, I'm right. And the market's wrong. So they're, they buy a stock for 10 bucks and it goes to, you know, eight and they say, oh, I'll buy more. And then it goes to five. I said, oh, I'll buy more. No, okay, you're wrong, right? You made a mistake. And um, the key is that Julian had the ability, he, bought it, he buys at 10 and it goes to 20. He's like, okay, buy more. I'm like, no, shouldn't we take profits? And if you look at the history of most investors, and Peter Lynch talks about this, they, they water their weeds and they pull their flowers. So as soon as they make a little bit of profit, they're, they're selling because they're afraid they're gonna lose the profit. Instead, when their weeds start to really flourish, or their, their mistakes start to get big, they double down. And that's the worst possible thing to do. So I really do try to focus on uh, making lots of investments, you know, partnering with lots of, of great management teams and lots of great investors. And then if things don't work out, you sell and move on to the next idea. And, and I think part of it is, if you're intellectually curious, if you've got a fast motor, you've always got ideas, right? I always have ideas. They may not all be good ideas and that's okay. Uh, you can try them out. And the more things you try and the more you know, positions you put on, the more chances you have to win. And if you press those winners, then you know, they can become a big part of, of your, your portfolio and your net worth. So again, kind of a meandering response, but it, there are a lot of pieces of it that are important. One is that ability to, I'm wrong. And there's nothing wrong with being wrong. And think, that's one of the things I don't like about Twitter, right? Is I love Twitter by and large. It's awesome. I and mean, you and I are talking because of Twitter and there's lots of things that go on because of Twitter. But the one thing I don't like is, you know, a troll will do a search and they'll, you know, find something you said three years ago and they'll say, oh, you were wrong. I'm like, really, you think I haven't changed my mind like seven times in the last three years on that particular position? It's not like I put a position on it and then I never changed my mind. But, you know, Lord Keynes, he was given a speech and next week he gave a speech and he changed something. And there was a guy who was at both speeches in the front row and he says, Lord Keynes, last week you said exactly the opposite. And he says, sir, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do? Of course, right? If, if new information comes along or the world changes, you have to be able to change your mind and not be so wed to being right. And you know, one of my other favorite lines, there's a, a great um, hedge fund guy that, that we've worked with for many, many years. And, and he had a really unique background in that his family owned a cable business, cable TV business. And he kind of came up through there. Then he went to business school. And then he said, I don't want to work in the family business anymore. I want to be a hedge fund manager. And he became a very successful multi-billion dollar fund. And he has this uh, poster as you walk in their office. And it says, with every investment, we get a little richer or a little wiser, never both. 
And it's such genius because when you, when you make an investment and it goes up, you learn nothing because you don't analyze it. You just say, oh, look how smart I am. Oh, this, so, so this game's so easy. But when it, when it goes down, oh, now you're focusing. What did I do wrong? You, you analyze it and you, you actually learn from it. So I think that's critically important is to be able to admit you're wrong, to not let big, small losses turn into big losses and, and learn from it. And one last pithy statement, because I'm, I'm actually staring at the book behind you on the shelf, which is um, Coach uh, Smith, who was the famous basketball coach at UNC, um, has this great line, Ralph, right? When you make a mistake, you need to recognize it, admit it, learn from it, and then the most important thing, forget it. Because most people agonize over their losses or agonize over their mistakes. No, you need to forget. And I hate to quote Coach K after Coach Smith because I'm a Carolina guy, but Coach K, I, I got to spend a couple hours with him one time and it was awesome. And two things that are funny. One, about halfway through, says, you know, our businesses are exactly the same. And I'm like, oh, okay, Coach, how am I anything like the greatest coach in basketball ever, right? Hall of Famer. How am I anything like you? He says, well, think about it, right? We both recruit, identify and recruit talent. We both put together a team and a game plan. We put them on the court and then we sit down. I said, holy crud, we have exactly the same business. It's awesome. I'm just like Coach K. Um, but then he says something that has, has really, I've repeated over and over and over again is, uh, you know what separates the great players or the great investors from the average player or the average investor is the greats focus on the next play. The bad ones or the average ones focus on the last play. And we've all seen this, right? You're watching a basketball game or a hockey game or whatever, and you make a mistake, right? You miss a shot. And then you run back and you commit a stupid foul because you're thinking about missing that shot. He says the greats, don't even remember taking the shot. They just go back and play good defense, steal the ball, make a layup. So they're always focused on the next play. And Michael Jordan has the great line. says, look, there have been thousands of times where I've had to take the winning shot and I miss. I, I don't even remember taking the shot. I just want the ball the next time because I'm going to make the next one. And it's that confidence, not arrogance, but that confidence to want the ball, but to know that you aren't going to be burdened by this set of mistakes because we all make mistakes. And in investing, look, the data is incontrovertible, right? The legends, George Soros, Michael Steinhardt, Julian Robertson, Stan Druckenmiller are right 56, 58% of the time. The average person is only right about 40% of the time. I aspire to get to 50, right? Because then you got the odds in your favor. But again, it's not whether you're right or wrong. It's how much money you make when you're right, how much money you lose when you're wrong. Awesome. I mean, you mentioned Twitter, Mark, and of course you're a must-follow on Twitter. But I want to read a tweet you you, you wrote, and because I, I want you to pair that tweet into the story of Bitcoin, where you you wrote that the greatest wealth is created by being an early investor in innovation. Making that investment requires believing in something before the majority of people understand it. You will be mocked, ridiculed, and criticized for your non-consensus action. But it's absolutely worth it. That has to be the story about Mark, Bitcoin, and crypto. Well, it's actually the story about Mark and most things in my life. Uh, I say in my, in my life, for whatever reason, uh, I've made a habit of hanging out with the bad guys. Uh, 
And it's, what are you talking about? Right? And if you think about it, um, all technology starts at the fringe, right? Who was the first person who had a pager? Drug dealers. Who are the first people that use the internet? Porn. You know, all technology, the, the new technology, the emerging technology starts at the fringe. And that's because they're locked out of the current traditional system. Like why did cannabis people start using crypto? Because they couldn't use the traditional banking system. It doesn't mean they're bad people, right? It's because they you know, had to find a way to do business. So for whatever reason, you know, throughout my life, whether it's junk bonds, right? I remember taking junk bonds to our board. Uh, at Notre Dame in the 90s. And they're like, we can't invest in junk bonds. You know, Michael Milken, he's a bad guy. And I'm like, okay, why, why, why can't you? Know? Well, they're junk. I said, well, wait, you, you do understand how accounting works, right? There's you know, senior debt, junior debt, unsecured debt, preferred stock, and common stock. We have 60% of the fund in common stock, which is junior to this unsecured debt, right? So it has more risk. I'm like, well, that's not... Well, yeah, that's right, but but no, <laughs> don't hate the game. You know, don't hate the player, hate the game. Um, so they they got around it. And we invested in junk bonds. And we made a ton of money. And you know, then when it came for the internet, right? When we made that investment in Google or Yahoo, which was another one they loved because stupid name, um, or eBay. I remember taking eBay, and they're like, "You want to invest in?" garage sales online? Are you an idiot? I'm like, no, I think it's gonna be really big. It turns out it's really big. Um, so it, it's not just about Bitcoin and clearly it applies to Bitcoin. It's my pinned tweet today because, you know, people want to associate with Bitcoin. I'm, I'm happy with that, but, but it's true of, of everything. And that's why I think innovation as an asset class is so important. And you know, there are only four asset classes. There's stocks, there's bonds, there's currencies and commodities. But innovation creates the new companies that, that give you stocks, bonds, and can be denominated in currencies and, and uh, trade around commodities. And so if I think about all of my, my investing career, and actually you know, all my life, um, when you have that ability to look beyond the current precedent. And, and Will Durant, the famous writer historian has this great line. He says, every custom begins with broken precedent, right? Galileo was threatened to be burned at the stake because he said the earth is not the center of the universe. How, you know, heretical. Well, no, it was right, <laughs> but he was the first one to figure it out. And, you know, the early explorers, it said they were gonna go across the ocean and yeah, I, I, I marvel at, at the courage of those people, right? To sail out into a sea in a little wooden boat and not know that you're going to come back. But you know, how about the first people that um, you know, used the internet and, and thought that this was more than just a government you know, communication system? Or the first people that used computers? I, I love, you know, I grew up in Seattle and a lot of my friends don't work, right? They were smart enough to go to work for Microsoft and I didn't. Um, and if you've ever seen the picture of the original Microsoft 7, you'd forgive me. They were a little ragtag looking group. I mean, Bill Gates' glasses were like this big. Uh, he looked like he was 12 years old. But that was a dumb decision, but you know, I, I made it. Um, but Steve Ballmer's mom famously said, honey, why would you go to work for that company? No one would ever want a computer in their house. He has 18 billion reasons he was right, mom was wrong. And so 
you have to break precedent. You have to say, no, people will have a computer in their house. No, people will carry around a supercomputer. This little thing right here is a hundred times more powerful than the first computer I bought from Michael Dell from his dorm room at University of Texas. He started this company, PCs Limited. He assembled computers in a dorm room. He sold them to people like me who bought them because he got rated the editor's choice in PC Magazine, which I didn't find out until 10 years later. He paid PC Magazine to get the editor's choice. Genius. I mean, the guy is, is a business genius. Um, maybe not a tech genius, but certainly a business genius. He might be a tech genius too, but I don't know. Um, it's like people say, you know, Bill Gates, he's a tech genius. No, he's the most ruthless businessman since John D. Rockefeller. He just tore people's hearts out in, in negotiations. And he's really, really good businessman, great marketer. He may be a tech genius. I don't know. But I think the other guys were, were tech geniuses at Lakeside. Um, uh so, Another aspect I want to touch okay. on, Mark, just because uh, we talk about innovation as an asset class, and I think, you know, we have, of course, many listeners from Norway, but the, the kind of interesting thing about Norway is that we have this this, this big fund, right? $1 trillion, yeah. uh, the Norwegian oil fund, and it, it's it's basically a passively indexed fund, right? Try to stay safe. Uh, but then I, I would like you to tell me a bit about demographics, growth, and maybe use Singapore as an example as well, because in the financial markets going forward, it seems like Singapore has a bit more advantageous model than Norway that is more passive, relying on you know the, the stocks basically to do the job. So how do you view that, that more safe model? And if you compare that to Singapore, which has basically been much more into innovation, yeah. trying That's to fund great. venture capital, et cetera. Look, it's a great insight. And and look, you know, Norway is 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 wonderfully blessed to have this this huge asset created by the oil wealth. And and that's wonderful. Um, but again, playing not to lose, or in, in in US football terms, playing the prevent defense, what it does, it prevents you from winning. <laughs> and so many times you see people try to protect something so much that they end up losing it. It's, you know, they're squeezing so tight, it slips through their fingers. And, and again, I, I don't mean to criticize what's going on at Norges, because um, I, you know, I actually, one of our students works there, uh, one of our former scholars works there. Um, and so I have nothing negative to say other than your point is really well taken in that if you think about any portfolio, right, it should be broadly diversified. And, and when you're huge, like Norges or Tomasic and Government of Singapore, uh, some of the you know, California state pensions, um, you have to have a big chunk of your portfolio in traditional stuff, right? It just, you know, you're, you're so big, there's only so many things you can own. But the difference between a, a GIC and, and Tomasic uh, in Singapore and, and all these others is they figured out that that money is a blessing, right? That money has a long duration. It's not going to be spent tomorrow. And therefore, the longer your duration, the more risk you should take, risk being measured by volatility. And what you want is to seek volatility, right? Markowitz won the Nobel Prize for this, right? When you take assets that are volatile and you add them to other assets that are less volatile but uncorrelated, you reduce the volatility of the portfolio and you increase the long-term compound return. And so we know for a fact that the best uh, long-term performance comes from the illiquidity premium, right? The premium you're paid to accept 
other people's liquidity preference. All of us, right? Everyone listening to this, we have a finite life. Unfortunately, working on biotech to fix that, but right now we all have a finite life. So we're going to spend our money in our lifetime, or we're going to leave it to our heirs or whatever. But you know, we have needs for cash flow. Well, you know, long duration funds like sovereign wealth funds, big pension funds, endowments, foundations, they have a longer duration. They live, in some cases, live forever. And so they should take advantage, right? There's only four ways you can make money in the whole world. You can take credit risk, you can take equity risk, you can take illiquidity risk, or you can use leverage. Those are the only four ways. And that's it. So if you think about a, a big sovereign wealth fund putting most of their capital in traditional assets, they're getting credit risk and the equity risk premium. That's fine, but they're leaving on the table this opportunity for illiquidity premium. And that illiquidity premium, particularly in venture capital, right, which is where innovation occurs, can be monstrous. And so what GIC and Tomasic have done is they said, okay, we're going to have our core portfolio, but then we're going to have a big allocation to this uh, investing in these companies of the future and this innovation. And what it does is it makes your wealth work harder. And that's the one thing I would say uh, a lot of these big pension funds uh, are missing. They're missing an incredible opportunity. Like I, I always say, I could solve the U.S. deficit problem. And people say, well, what are you talking about? Yeah, I said, it's simple, right? Instead of running our social security system like a pay-as-you-go system, right? So my taxes go to pay my mom's retirement. What they should do is run it like an insurance company, which is what GIC and uh, Tomasic do. So you, you take the money, you take my premiums, and I would actually have to pay less then, but you put them in a pool and then you invest them and you invest them in long duration assets like venture capital and you build wealth and then you can pay out a greater proportion to the beneficiaries. And uh, it's a pretty simple concept. It's been done for hundreds of years by lots of successful businesses. But unfortunately, to your point, a lot of the big sovereign wealth and pensions just haven't been able to embrace it. And I think it's because there's a great article uh, written by Barton Biggs in the 90s when he was at Morgan Stanley. Uh, he's passed now, God rest his soul. But he wrote Group Stink. And it's two pages. And it's the best two pages ever on why groups make bad decisions. So you think about a Norge pension board or a CalPERS pension board or a UNC where I was pension board or a endowment board, they will by definition make bad decisions because you know Buffett was right. An investment committee should be an odd number and three is too many. So individuals will always make better decisions. Why? But you know, we don't have a big group here, but if we had a big group on this podcast and I said, all right, what's the best restaurant in you know, Norway? I would get McDonald's. Like, how can I get McDonald's? Well, it's because if I ask any one person, you would give me a great restaurant. Someone else would give me a great restaurant. Another person. But when you're in a group, you don't want to look stupid. So, well, I like Indian food, but they might not like Indian food. And, or I like Greek food. They might not like Greek food. Or I like, you know, traditional Norwegian food. They might. So, oh, I'm going to go continental. Oh, well, continental. Well, they might not eat, you know, McDonald's because it's easy. Everybody knows it. Like, no, I don't want to go to McDonald's. I want the best restaurant. And same thing's true in pensions is a group is never 
going to say, you know, I think we should take more risk, not less. Well, no, we're not taking more risk. We're taking more targeted risks in assets that have upside. And back to my pinned tweet, right? The greatest wealth is created by investing in something that you believe in before others understand. That means embedded in the, the upside is all of the underappreciated, under, misunderstood gain, right? If you invest, I would say, if you invest in something and you feel really good about it, you're gonna lose money because it's already in the price. Because herd behavior, it's really, it's really easy to buy Apple now. It was really hard to buy Apple 20 years ago. It's easy to buy Amazon now. Really hard to buy it 20 years ago when it was a little plastic desk and Jeff with his, you know, he didn't look like the Hulk of Terminator like he does now uh, with, with the hot girlfriend. But um, it was really hard to invest. And here's the crazy thing. I always say Amazon is very much like Bitcoin. So people say, oh, Bitcoin is too volatile. I'm like, oh, really? Okay. So despite all that volatility, it's gone from 0.004 cents to 37,000 as we speak right now, 37,000. But it's volatile. Oh, okay. So when was the good time to sell? Okay, how about this? Amazon, in the 20 years as a public company, has had a double-digit drawdown every year, including this year. And the average is 31%, twice more than 90%. When was a good time to sell Amazon? That would be never. Who owned it since the IPO to today? Jeff and his mom and dad. And now his ex-wife has them. But that's it. That's it. No one else could handle the volatility, even though it's a great company, a great idea, because people couldn't comprehend what Jeff was envisioning about the future. It wasn't just about selling books or about selling music. It was about selling everything. I always ask people all the time, Amazon and Bitcoin are exactly the same. They're not companies, they're networks. What does Amazon do? They don't make anything. They connect buyers and sellers. That's all they do. And they take a cut. What is Bitcoin, right? It is the fuel for the internet of value. It is the base layer protocol for money over internet protocol. Maybe the greatest invention I'll see in my lifetime, I hope to live a long time, biotech and all, but it could be, and I believe this, the greatest wealth creator in my lifetime, which is awesome. And, and, I'm, and I got a ringside seat because, because I ran into Dan Moorhead, who in you know, seven years ago, look, you know, tell a story on myself, not as smart as I think I am. So seven years ago, Dan says, hey, come to San Francisco, let's talk. He says, I'm shutting down my hedge fund. I'm gonna start two funds, one to do Bitcoin, one to do blockchain infrastructure. I'm like, oh, infrastructure, picks and shovels. I'm in, love it. Bitcoin, I would say, look, I was not running drugs on Silk Road. I was not a cryptography student. Didn't get it. Bad mistake. Bitcoin fund, best performing hedge fund in the history of hedge funds. It's up about 250%. For, not 250, 250 times. 250 times. Now I made 11 times my money in Dan's first fund. I'm not complaining. And then the, the other funny story that you'll love, I, and other people have heard this, but so in 2015, my son was graduating from college. He said, go, uh, he wanted to live in San Francisco. Go to San Francisco, go to Dan. He'll introduce you to some internet company or uh, blockchain companies and uh, just pick one. So he looked at Coinbase and Zappo and BitPesa and like, dad, I don't know. It, it might be a big thing, but I'm just going to go with KPMG. It's safe, gets me to San Francisco. And so we got a chuckle over, over last Thanksgiving. He's like, okay, fine, dad, you were right. But you're not as smart as you think you are. I'm like, oh, do tell. He's like, 
well, you didn't lever up the house and put it all in Bitcoin. Like, hmm, good point. Okay. And he got the last laugh because now he works for Snowflake and that's done okay. So. I mean, I mean, that's awesome. Uh, another part, just a, a couple of topics left here, Mark, but you talked about the, the demographics and how important that is because we usually, yep. when we, we have stories about growth, we talk about the interest rates, et cetera. But from your perspective, it's going negative. We'll probably stay negative. So yep. why are we missing the, the demographic piece? Because I, I don't see that as much in the news as the interest rates. Demographics is destiny. And again, you're, you're, you're such insightful questions. I, the thing I love best uh, about doing any podcast is when the host has done great homework and research and ask great questions. So this, this is fantastic. Um, but look, demographics is destiny. There's no way out, right? 25 to 45 year old people are not productive, right? And they cause inflation. So when you have a lot of 25 year olds in an economy, take India today, you have high inflation. And it's not because 25 to 45 year olds aren't good people, right? I, you know, have a couple of those. And since I, my kids are in their, you know, late twenties, young thirties, or older kids. And it doesn't mean they're not good people, but you're not productive the way the world measures productivity because you're learning your craft. 45 to 65 year old people, myself included, are really, really productive. Again, not because we're smarter or better or more handsome. It's because we've learned our craft and we're able to leverage, right? Remember that 20s for getting educated, 30s for building your reputation, 40s for capitalizing on it, 50s and 60s for enjoying. It's in those 40s and 50s where you're really blowing and going. And so that's fantastic. 65 to 85 year old people, not productive. Perfectly nice people, and they don't spend a lot. So it's not shocking that when you have a lot of 65 to 85 year old people like Japan, two things happen. One, your interest rates fall. Actually, three things happen. Uh, I call them the killer Ds. One, your interest rates fall. So that's the, the first impact of, of bad demographics. Second is you get wildly indebted because you promise all these things called entitlements. And an entitlement is a promise you make to yourself that you don't fund and you ask your kids to pay for. Who wouldn't vote for that? All old people will vote for entitlements. So you get massive debt in the economy and those two things cause deflation. And so we're in a deflationary death spiral in the Western world because of the aging population. Every day, 10,000 people in the United States turn 65. Every day, 10,000 people in Europe turn 65. There's no way to stop that, right? When I found out we were pregnant at 47, I'm like, hey, I don't want to turn 48. It's hard to be 48 and have a baby. Guess what? I turned 48 and then I turned 49 and then I turned 50. You can't stop it. And so there will be more 65 to 85 year old people who are not productive and who are a drain net on society. Again, not because they're bad people and not because they don't deserve it, but just is. And so Japan leads the way, interest rates, inflation go down. Okay, they have negative CPI again, they're in deflation. Europe, same thing. Europe has negative interest rates, ridiculous. Capitalism does not work with negative interest rates. And why would you put your money in a bank and pay when you can unbank yourself and put it in Bitcoin? Makes no sense or deposit a BlockFi, even better. Um, so America is right behind it. So Japan, nine years later, Europe, 11 years later, or two more years later, uh, 11 years after Japan is, is the US. And so everything that happens in Japan, you can just see nine or 11 years later, it's gonna happen in Europe and the US. So Europe is going to slow. There's no way you can have high GDP growth when you have a decreasing working age population. And eventually you guys, the echo boomers, the kids of the baby boomers will drive a great resurgence. We will have an amazing, amazing resurgence 
you know, 10, 12, 13 years from now, and it'll be awesome. But between now and then, we're going to have low interest rates, we're going to have deflation, and we're going to have governments that overspend. And uh, it's going to be an incredible environment for real money like Bitcoin. Great points. Uh, another topic that I just want your two cents on is it's like the, the pairing of the math piece in stocks and the storytelling. Because as long as I've been in the stock market, let's say the last five, 10 years, it seems like the storytelling is just getting better and better. So the better the story, yep. the prices go up. But I mean, you live to see both those sides where the math, the fundamentals actually drove the market. How, how do you see that evolving in the future? Because it's gotten pretty insane now in terms of the again, storytelling outweighing the, the balance here. Yeah, such, again, such an incredible question. And look, I, uh, yeah, I may be the worst trader of equities on the planet. I'm a value guy. I, and we're all formed by our initial experiences, right? I went to work for a bond house and then a, an insurance company and then an equity shop that was value. And that was my inculcation into the business. And so I believe in value. I probably have a value gene. I'm just cheap. I mean, I drive a little Kia. I, I, I don't spend a lot. I, you know, I, I'm cheap and that's just me. Um, I mean, I don't understand wasting money. I mean, you know, you see two things and they're the same and one's a thousand dollars, one's a hundred. Why would I pay a thousand for the same thing? I, in fact, my, my son has funny thing. So, uh, my daughter and her friend were, were down looking at purses when Kate Spade was the hot thing. And he literally said it was great. And I was like, I, I trained my son well. He said, why would you pay $200 for that little black tag? And they said, what are you talking about? It's a Kate Spade bag. He says, no, the bag is worth like five bucks. That little black thing is worth, you know, 200 bucks. So uh, I'm a value guy. So I'm horrible at the stories, right? I, I missed Tesla. I'm not, I don't own Tesla. I was actually short Tesla for a while. We, we actually made money early being short Tesla because I think, you know, the Tesla story is, is a crazy one. But, but then uh, we covered the short when it was started to get really stupid. And uh, so we have no position today. But I agree with you. Storytelling is highly prized. And I think what's happened, and I think GameStop in the last couple of days is, is the perfect poster child for it is, is we've gamified investing. It's not investing, right? Picking Scrabble tiles out of a bag and buying that ticker is not investing. That is speculating in the worst way. And it's, it's this gamification of investing or trading that you know we've seen this before. And this is not new, right? I tweeted out the other day, a story from 2000 of a 16 year old kid who got arrested and fined by the SEC for posting optimistic, untrue statements on a bulletin board. Because we used to have bulletin boards and chat rooms. They just weren't instantaneous and global like Reddit or Twitter. But it's the same old thing. And it's the you know, same thing at the turn of the century. People would hand out pamphlets with bad information to pump up a, a penny stock. That's why boiler rooms were called boiler rooms. So nothing new in this world. But the reason storytelling is so popular today is because of social media. And it, it creates these echo chambers that feed us what we want to believe in. And you know, one of the problems is there's a good book on this called Belief. And it, it says that the way humans form beliefs is the opposite of the way they should form beliefs. The way we, we form beliefs is we're given them, 
by our parents, by the media, by government, whatever. You know, you're a Democrat, you're a Republican, you're a socialist, you're, you're a, you know, a Catholic, you're a Jew, you're, whatever, you're given that. And then you accept all data that supports that belief and reject anything that's against that. What you should do is once you reach the age of reason, you should gather all the data. You should sit and analyze it. And then you should form a belief based on that data. That's why I love the scientific method. That's why I think my science training was the best thing for investing is hypothesis formation, hypothesis testing. You're wrong a lot. The experiment doesn't work. And then you have to form a new experiment. And that's the same thing in investing. And I think we've glamorized these stories to the point now where people will buy things without doing the math, right? We've suspended belief. I got in a debate with, with some guys at a class I was doing a guest lecture and I made a statement. I said, look, Tesla will never make money. Not ever. And the guys are, what, what do you mean? They make lots of money. I said, oh, they've, they've never made money and they gap make money by selling tax credits, but they, they do not make money, right? They have negative cash flow. The only reason they exist is people keep giving them money. And, uh, you shouldn't pay a lot for that. You know, like, oh, that's crazy. It's gone up. I'm like, yes, it has. It's gone up a lot and I don't own it. And I'm, and that's, that's bad. But um, I believe, you know, like micro strategy in 2001, you know, which went from $3 to $330 as a short squeeze. And I think GameStop's the same thing. Just because something goes up doesn't mean it's valuable because price is a liar. You know, John Burbank's famous line, price is a liar. The price is not the value. And that's and I talk about this with Bitcoin all the time, right? When Bitcoin hit $10,000 in 2017, that was the value. That's what we believe fair value was of the network according to Metcalf's law. When it surged to 20, I tweeted out on December 18th, this is crazy. It's likely going to turn. And it did. Now, I'm not saying, you know, I sold everything, but, but I definitely hedged. And I said it was going to take time to get through the next bear market phase after the halving. And I think the same thing will happen here. I think this year in July will reach fair value, you know, I think which is around 100,000. I think we might blow right through that. But then price will be a liar and it won't be a good buy. So if you follow the Metcalf's Law parabola, that's the value and, and that's what you should seek. And I think investors should always seek to buy value, buy things when they're undervalued. I was on CNBC in December 18 and Bitcoin is trading at 3,200 bucks. And uh, Melissa, and I love Melissa and she's great. And she has me on all the time. And, and she says, you know, Bitcoin's down a lot this year. I'm like, yeah, I know. And uh, that's why we sold it a year ago. And, um, but we're big buyers here. In fact, I will issue a challenge to anyone who will take it over the next 10 years I get Bitcoin, you get uh, S&P, million dollar charity bet, uh, like the Buffett bet, no one would take me up on it. And I was so confident, why? Not because I had any inside information, is because at 3,200 bucks, it was well under the value of the network. The price was a liar. And so today, you know, I think we're under value a little bit. Um, by July, I think we'll be under, if we stay here, we'll be undervalued by a lot. And uh, we'll see where we go. I mean, that's a great insight. Just the last part I want to touch upon, Mark, because you said that, I mean, when you started in the industry, you wanted to learn and then you wanted to build stuff. You build amazing businesses and co-investments. And But you also said that you would like to teach at some point. And, 
Uh, and I mean, um, you said you did a guest lecture. Uh, if you can, if you can broaden this a bit about capitalism, the things you are seeing in the U.S. Because just being in Norway, reading the Twitter um, feed, it doesn't really give insight into the climate in the U.S. But it seems like something is deeply broken. But I also yeah. don't like. I don't. I don't also feel like saying that being on the outside, it's easier to talk to people on the inside. So in, in your mind, how do you want to fix? How should U.S. fix itself if if it needs to be fixed? And what what are the issues here? Yeah, look, the second question is really hard. Um, the first one's easy, right? So I describe my life and career in chapters. So kind of business life. So my chapter one, I worked for not-for-profits and it was awesome and, and I loved it and uh, I really enjoyed it and I got psychic income, right? They don't pay you very well when you work for a not-for-profit, but you get psychic income by doing good, right? Helping students and professors and uh, it was awesome. Loved it. Then chapter two was building Morgan Creek. And we built a pretty nice business uh, in fund of funds and direct investing. Uh, my chapter three is building Morgan Creek Digital, uh, where we're building a digital asset business. And uh, I'm having more fun as I, than I've had in, in years. Uh, and my chapter four will, 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 will be to teach. And I, I like to teach. I, I, I've taught classes. I, I created something called the AIM class, the Applied Investment Management class, both at Notre Dame and at UNC. That was the class I was guest lecturing the other night at, at UNC. And, and I, I like it. I, I, I like educating. I, I think, you know, I was given the gift of gab by my mom, right? I mean, she could talk to anyone, anywhere, any place about anything. And uh, I think I picked that up. But I, the best compliment I ever got uh, was someone said, you know, you can take a really complex subject and make it simple. I'm like, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. Because that, that, that's what you, if you talk in jargon, right, if you try to confuse people to show how smart you are, well, then you're just wasting everybody's time. What you need to do is be able to relate at a certain level. So I, I do like, and so why I will teach is, is I, I believe, you know, young people are the future. And, and, I, and I really love that, that energy of being around um, and my time on campuses when I worked at the endowments was great because every year a new crop of bright-eyed freshmen come in and, and they're just awesome. They have all this useful enthusiasm. And so, so I'll, I'll do that. But, you know, on the question of how do you fix America? Boy, oh boy, where, where do you start? Look, you know, we have a bunch of, of, of big challenges that, that, you know, are relatively uh, difficult to address. I mean, one, you know, we have a government that has grown into a behemoth that doesn't fulfill its original role, right? The original role of government, it was a voluntary organization. You, you spent two years, then you went back to your family farm and you, you served, you, it was service. Uh, it was like you know, mandatory military service in Israel, right? It, it, was, it was service. Now it's a profession, right? People are professional um, politicians. And that means if it costs $100 million to become a senator, Right? Who has $100 million? Not a lot of people. Meg Whitman did, but you know, she lost. But she spent $100 million, and most people don't have that. So what do you have to do? You have to raise it. And if you raise it, then you owe people. And so I think what happens is you have the cronyism, and crony capitalism has replaced pure capitalism. So capitalism is not broken. Capitalism is the best form of economic theory on the planet. It's better than everything else. It's better than socialism, better than communism, better than Marxism. Capitalism works. But crony capitalism is bad. 
And so that's the dictator playbook, right? The people at the top get all their friends around them. They concentrate the wealth. Look at Zimbabwe, look at Venezuela, you know, look at every dictator on the planet. Uh, and we had an aspiring one here in the US until recently. And you know, when, when you do that, right? When you pay people for um, favors, then the whole system starts to break down. So I think first thing we should do is, is have term limits and get the career politicians out on both sides. I don't care which side. Obviously, there aren't even really sides, right? There are no left, there's no right, there's no Republican, there's no Democrat, there's in and out. And when you're out, you do or say whatever it takes to get in. Remember, Trump was a lifelong Democrat who ran as a Republican. He is not really a Republican. He was like, whatever, I didn't even know what he was, but he just wanted to be in. And once he was in, he would do or say whatever it took to stay in. Thankfully, he's out. But uh, there's no there's no right left. It's in and out. And um, I, I think we got to get some of the people out and and bring some people in. Because the other part of the problem is the best of the best don't aspire to politics anymore. They don't have the John F. Kennedy-esque or Bobby Kennedy-esque kind of, I'm a really good, talented person. I will take time out of my life to serve. You know, we have some of that. You know, Some of the mayors in New York have been examples of that. Michael Bloomberg is a great example. Um, but I think you know, attracting really good, talented people into in political life would require some, some restructuring. You know, the other problem we have is this inequality issue that you mentioned. And look, we have the greatest income and wealth inequality in the history of the world, and it's horrible. And, and it's because of the political system that we've created. So we've sowed the seeds of our own demise. And what happens is it all comes back to money. Uh, I hate to say it, and it goes back to the Fed. In 1913, we created, not we, some bankers created this, this vehicle based on the, uh, from you know, the Europeans, from the Rothschilds, from the 1600s, who created the first central bank. Central banks are bad. <laughs> They're bad, right? They exist, originally they existed to finance wars and make really powerful families even more powerful. Now they exist to enrich bankers. And by enriching bankers who then enrich the top 1%, you create this massive income and wealth inequality through inflation. Inflation is not a good thing. We should not aspire to inflation. We should aspire to stable prices. And over 1776 to 1913, a dollar, which we borrowed from uh, Europe, was called the dollar in Holland. And uh, we did the dollar in 1776. And from 1776 to 1913, a dollar was worth a dollar. And had some fluctuation around the two wars, but it was basically a dollar. Since 1913, we've turned it into a nickel. So we've eroded 95% of the purchasing power of the dollar. And it really exacerbated in 73 when we went off the gold standard. So now we have this problem in that monetary currencies, fiat currencies, are in decline. Cryptocurrencies are in ascension. And so what's going to happen over the next 20 years is crypto will replace fiat in terms of a great store of value. We'll still have fiat. And it'll be used with what we pay bills in the different countries. But as we move to more of a borderless global village, which is pretty cool. I mean, I love the fact that I'm talking to you in Norway. I love the fact that I'll say something on Twitter and it'll be translated into 20 languages and you know, promoted all around the world. That's awesome. And the fact that Bitcoin money can be transferred anywhere in the world instantaneously, no borders, no regulations, is incredible. And that's the world in which we are moving. So again, long answer to your question, but a really important and insightful question. And what, what I think the US needs to do is one, we gotta stop with the American exceptionalism. All the smart people don't live in America. 
<laughs> All the good businesses are not in America. You know, it, it's it's a big global world out there. We need to stop being protectionist and nationalist. Those are, you know, they've never worked. Uh, you know, Smoot, Holly, bad plan. That's what, you know, Trump tariff man was trying to do. Uh, Cold War 2.0 with China, bad idea. Um, weakening, you know, relationships with Europe, bad idea. You know, Adam Smith was right, you know, 500 years ago. Comparative advantage wins. There are smart people in Norway. There are smart people in America. There are smart people in China. And we should collaborate and we should exchange goods and services and take advantage of what people are really good at on a global basis. And I think Bitcoin will accelerate that trend as will Ethereum, um, but lots of cool stuff ahead. But I just think like one concept, concept we didn't mention, but you actually, I think, coined it. It's, it's like the trust net. And what you're basically yeah. saying right now that there's a lack of trust in the system. We don't trust the finance people. We don't trust the, the 1%. So the, there's basically a trust issue. And and I mean, you coined the, world, the word trust now, net. Now, Christopher, it's so, it's so great. And I appreciate you, you bringing that up because I, I really do hope it catches on, right? We had the internet, we have the mobile net, and now we're going to have the trust net or the internet of value. And that trust net, to your point, you know, the cover story of The Economist, right, is it's the single source of truth and trust. And there is a systematic or systemic degradation in trust of institutions around the world. It's not just America, it's everywhere. And that distrust is evil, right? It's, it's insidious and it's bad. And so by restoring trust, by having a single source of truth, by having a digital record, a public ledger that is immutable, right? And unchangeable. It's incredible. So we can get away from having to rely on the corrupt governments and banking systems that have evolved up. And look, I'm not saying, I think fractional reserve banking is one of the greatest inventions of all time. It's awesome. But the perversion of that through cronyism and crony capitalism and payola and lobbying is horrible. I mean, lobbying is just corruption. It's just a better term for corruption. 100% last question, Mark. It's been fantastic to talking to you, but just some basic advice for, for the next investors and entrepreneurs. What are some of the reflections you would like to pass on? I mean, it seems like you also had, during your career, an ability to reinvent yourself, right? We talk about yep. in, in investing in innovation, but it's also about investing in oneself, right? Being able to be at the fringes, trying new stuff. If you should distill some advices down, just, just to wrap it up and summarize, what are some of the key key takeaways you can give to the next generation that wants to build stuff and create value? Yeah, so it's a really, really important question. And, and I appreciate the, the comment on uh, kind of reinvention. And, and it's so important, right? It's back to the don't be afraid to fail. Uh, try things that I, I say, you know, life is better outside the comfort zone. If you stay in your comfort zone, it's pretty boring, right? Live outside the comfort zone, take risk. Don't be afraid of risk, seek risk. Now manage risk. I'm not saying be stupid, right? Don't, you know, drive off a cliff, right? That's bad, right? Let's, let's, let's manage risk, but seek risk and seek opportunities where there's asymmetry, where there's more upside than downside uh, and manage. So, you know, for me, uh, I'll tell you the things that I did poorly that I wish I did better. You know, first is networking right? Network, network, network. I didn't do networking when I was young. I should have, because it turns out the people that you network with when you're young, 20 years hence, some of them are pretty important. Some become presidents or corporate leaders or, you know, influencers. And, and so having friends in high places is, is a really good thing. Um, so network, 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 and, you know, take advantage of, you know, 
go to trade association event, trade association events, and and hang out in Twitter chat chat rooms, and and you know, DM. Um, the other one is is gratitude, right? I, I tweeted about this the other day. When was the last time you sent a one line thank you to someone who helped you, someone who believed in you, or someone who inspired you? And we all take it for granted that people want to help us, people want to inspire us, um, but but thank them, right? Just be grateful. Uh, so. Another one is, is to find mentors really, really fast. And a mentor doesn't have to be somebody you know, right? You don't have to hang out. You can actually read a book about someone you, you, know, you aspire to be like, and you can learn about them, and you can aspire to be like them. I have this uh, hedge fund guy, young guy, Carolina guy, been great. He read 100 biographies of great investors. He said it made me a better investor. Of course it would, and that's fantastic. So you know, mentorship is really important. Um, read, 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 and, and read books, right? Don't read news. I read almost no news. I don't read newspapers. I don't read magazines. I, I don't, I mean, I do read some news on Twitter, but I, I, don't, I don't want to read news. I want to read ideas. I want to read books, right? you know? And I also take time to have big conversations. I, I always ask people, okay, how many friends do you have on Facebook? Goes, oh, I have a thousand. No, you don't. No one has a thousand friends. Okay, a friend is someone that you can have a two-hour conversation with about a compelling or interesting topic. There aren't very many of those you have. Find those people and have those conversations. And importantly, seek people who have a different view than yours. Don't just seek you know people who believe who agree with you. Find people that you disagree with vehemently. And then have a conversation, have a dialogue and a discourse where you seek truth. Back to this whole idea of truth and trust. Don't try to convince the other person of your view. Discuss to seek truth. And that, that is a, a critical, critical component. Uh, another is invest in yourself, right? The greatest invest in, investment is always in yourself. So education, you know, courses. And the great thing now is you, know, you can take a class from the greatest teacher in the world on your screen, right? On your phone, on your computer, for free. I mean, you can find YouTube, you know, videos, or you can find, you know, TED Talks from people who are extraordinary. Like, you know, the TED Talk on, uh, um, oh shoot, now I'm blanking on the guy's name. Oh, um, Simon Sinek. Simon Sinek on uh, the principle of why Apple won and, and on the principle of why versus what. Changed my life, absolutely changed my life in, in every way. I didn't have to meet Simon. I would love to meet Simon, but I, it changed my life because I watched his 11 minute TED talk. I probably watched it 10 times actually. And uh, so seek people who you admire. Uh, and the other one for me is ask, right? You wanna have lunch with somebody? Ask them. They might actually have lunch with you. You wanna do a video chat with somebody? Ask them. They might actually do it. Um, you, know, you and I are talking because you asked. You know, and that's that's great. That's a great skill to have. Um, invest all the time, all the time. Like have lots of investments. Shotgun. I mean, just don't wait till you know everything to make an investment. Have lots of investments and try lots of things. And I don't mean willy nilly just spray and pray, but but actually try lots of different things. And and again, don't be afraid to fail. And when you're wrong, move on cover and, uh, and move on, but, but invest because you learn by doing. 
Uh, and you have to feel that, that pain of loss. You have to feel that pain of mistakes. And again, you either get richer or wiser, never both. Richer is good, wiser is better. Because uh, wisdom, wisdom comes from experience. Experience comes from bad decisions. Um, and so making lots of decisions, some of them good, some of them bad, uh, is really important. And, and just don't be afraid to fail. Uh, there's no stigma to it. Don't be afraid to be wrong. Uh, I would say strong opinions, loosely held. It's perfect. And maybe just one final thought is that you have to trust the process. I mean, it's very easy to look at Mark Yusko from the outside and say that this guy's a genius. But I mean, along your <laughs> no, journey, there's been ups and downs, right? So it's not like... As yeah. long as you keep digging at it, just stay at it. Because I think maybe if you have two, two, three year bad years, you will say to yourself, okay, this is not for me. I'm going to give up. But if you see the guys that are resilient, you just have to continue, right? Don't stop. Oh, Christopher, thank you. That, 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 is, that is the most important word. The absolute most important word in everything we do is resilience, right? What separates the winners from the losers is resilience. We are all going to fail. We are all going to fall on our face. I've had so many just miserable failures. I mean, there's so many things I stink at and, and you're kind to even use the G word with me. I am not the smartest tool in the shed, right? I, I did not get good grades. I did not get good test scores. I went to a perfectly fine college and I, and I did fine. And, and I've, you know, I'm not a dummy. Don't get me wrong, but I, I'm not, you know, brains is not my strong suit. What, what, what we all have are gifts, right? We're given gifts. And, you know, I, I think I have a gift for relating to people. I think I have a gift for communication. I think I have a gift for being willing to try new things. And I think that that is a gift. Uh, we're all given many gifts and, and using those gifts is, is really important. Um, and trying to improve the things we're not so good at, right? I try to get smarter. I try to learn. I, I read a lot. I, I talk to a lot of smart people. Um, but resilience is number one, right? If, if you wallow in self-pity, if you say, woe is me, uh, when something goes wrong, uh, it's gonna be a really difficult and challenging life. But if you, if you pick yourself up and um, you know, it's the whole get knocked down, get right back up, get knocked down again, get right back up. Uh, you just gotta keep moving. And, and that ability to forget, to not dwell, and, and, and to be truly resilient. Meaning, you know, if you think about resilience, right, is, is, you know, it gets dented, but then it heals itself back to the original form. It doesn't stay dented and, we're, and say, oh, geez, if I didn't have this dent, I could be great. You, you heal, you, you are resilient and, and you go forward uh, and get right back out there. And, uh, you know, look, I, there's so many opportunities and so many great opportunities. And it, it really is about what you make. You know, you make your future. Um, and, and you really, you can do just about anything you put your mind to. Now, yeah, there are time, place, and events and circumstances. And it says, oh, but this person is born into poverty. Lots of stories of people who overcome poverty. Oh, this person's born, you know, into a, a disadvantaged part of the world. You can move. Um, this person doesn't have, you know, good relationships, find some other ones. And the internet empowers that, uh, it's, but it's about commitment, right? If you're committed, um, and you are resilient and you are forward looking, uh, you, you can be successful and will be successful. And, and the last thing I would say is, uh, competitive, 
right? The most important thing in this world is to be competitive. And I don't care if it's sports or crossword puzzles or business or investing or service or philanthropy, compete, baby, compete and, and want to win. Um, Pat Garrity, famous basketball player at Notre Dame, um, there's this great thing. They're, they're playing Kentucky and Kentucky makes this shot. There's only a couple seconds left and everybody's hanging their head. And he goes, what, what are you doing? We are going to win this game. And because the, the camera's right on me, we are going to win this game. And everybody's looking at him, are you crazy? We're not going to win this game. And sure enough, they get shot, they win the game. And after the, the game, the, the, the announcer says, how did you know you're going to win? He says, my dad told me, winners win. Okay, winners win. And if you have that positive mental attitude, so life needs to be about a positive mental attitude, not a Pollyanna, oh, everything's great if the fire's burning, but I can be positive about anything. Right. I got, you know, I'll give you, I got COVID, right. I didn't try to get COVID. I, I, I didn't think I was going to get COVID, but I got it. And, uh, you know, I didn't wallow in self-pity and say, oh, woe is me. I made sure I, you know, stayed healthy. I got my sleep. I drank my fluids. I, I did what the doctor told me and, and it wasn't a big deal. Um, and I know lots of people have had way worse situations and, and it is a, it's a tough virus, but, uh, staying positive, no matter what people throw at you. I think is really important. That was Mark Yusko, the legendary investor and innovator, sharing his biggest lessons from his career so far. If you liked this episode, it would be great if you could give it a review and also share it with your professional network. If you want to get in touch with me, Twitter is the place, at Chris Vonheim. You can also find more information in the show notes. Hope to see you tune in the next episode and take care.